Brethren and friends, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to study the Bible with you in this series of meetings. I, different ones have commented about the lessons, and hopefully maybe they've been some benefit to you as well as for me, but I want to suggest to you that it's just been a real joy to, to be with you. You don't know just how encouraging this has been to me and how much I've benefited from this, Donna and I. And so we're grateful for all that you've done. I know that this time frame is, is limited, and for that reason, we'll talk about those kind of things at another time. But I want to look, as we begin, in Titus chapter 2. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through verse 14 in our study this morning. And as we examine this text, we have announced from time to time that the series of meetings is kind of around the theme that we live in a different world. We live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And there are many things that are challenging to our faith. Many of these things threaten us uh, socially, morally, and certainly spiritually. And consequently, it's imperative that we be aware of the dangers that surround us that will destroy us, destroy our faith, destroy our souls, and know how to prevent those things from occurring in our lives. And I'd like to take this time just to read the text beginning at verse 11. It tells us, For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. And then Paul concludes that chapter with verse 15, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So we look at Paul's instruction to Titus, who was preaching on the Isle of Crete, that this is what you're to do. You're to teach people how to live in a wicked world. Now to accomplish that, Throughout this book, of course, there are some things that are germane to that conclusion, but let's get the, the context of the immediate context of what we're discussing here. You'll notice in the second chapter, beginning in verse 1, Paul said, But speak thou the things which befit the sound doctrine. Notice right away that the apostle addresses Titus regarding the difficulty of his work that it's necessary that you speak sound doctrine. Now implied in that is there is unsound doctrine. And that's addressed multiple times as Paul writes to Titus and as he writes to the young preacher Timothy who's preaching in the city of Ephesus. That there were those who were uh, teaching false doctrine. It was unsound. It was not healthy. And that's how the word is used in this instance. But Titus is to teach sound doctrine. Now in doing that, look at verse 2. That aged men be temperate, grave, sober-minded, sound in faith and love and patience. That aged women likewise be reverent in demeanor, not slanderers nor enslaved to much wine. Teachers of that which is good, that they may train the young women to love their husbands 
to love their children, to be sober-minded, chaste, workers at home, kind, being in subjection to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The younger men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself an example of good works, in thy doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sound speech, that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of us. Now you'll look through this, this context of the second chapter and you see the direction that the Apostle Paul is directing Timothy regarding his work as a gospel preacher. You're to speak sound doctrine. And then in doing so, there are various, I'll call it classifications of brethren classifications of people, the older men and women, the younger men and women, and your own example. You teach people how they need to live. Now, Grant and I were talking on the way here that our perspective, and some of you who are older, uh, are growing older, on things begins to change a little bit from what it was when we were just very young. And so these classifications are recognized categories, if I may use that term, of people that you would teach. But one of the things that all of them seem to share is you teach them to think soundly, be sober-minded. That occurs multiple times in this context, and there's a reason for that, so that they might become what they need to be. Now, when you examine the immediate expression in verse 11, the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing or teaching. That word that is used there literally means to educate. The grace of God has appeared teaching, educating, instructing us how to live. Now, it's God's desire that all would come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. So this instruction is fundamental. We've got to learn how to live in a wicked world. And I really am convinced that we don't approach often the gospel of Christ as a book of instructions. And that's what it is. How many of you who are older now and look back at the days when you were trying to put together a gym set in your backyard for the kids? You know, I can do this. I know how to do this. And so you pour it all out on the ground and you begin to put it together and you find that when you're done you've got a bunch of nuts and bolts all left over and, and something's not working right and you get the instruction manual out and then you start trying to figure it out. Wouldn't it have been better if we just read the instructions before we started? Oh, but we're too smart for that. But you see, the thing is, that's how we treat God. Here's the instruction manual. And somehow we approach this as if we can't read it. We can't understand it. We can't comprehend it. But that's what it's designed for. God designed it to that end. Let's not indict God with giving us a book we can't read, we can't study, we can't understand it, and then of all things, demand that we understand it as we read in Ephesians chapter 5. That don't make sense, does it? This is the instruction book. We can read it. We can know what it says. And so it's God's desire that all would come to the knowledge of the truth as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, which entails study, read it, know what it says. Well, to what end? Well, Titus 
is revealing that the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to the end that we would expel some things from our lives, ungodliness and worldly lust. Now, in our efforts to do that, we need to know what that is so that the goal might be accomplished ultimately in this text that we might gain mastery over myself and to behave in a fair and equitable manner to those about me. And especially as we've been talking this week, to recognize the majesty of God in my life. Now how can we learn that? We learn that in the gospel. Because grace came teaching us how to do that. Isn't that simple? And we can get that. We can implement that. Now let's notice first of all, grace teaches. What is grace? Well, I know as soon as I say that or ask that question, folks say, unmerited favor. We've got that nailed down. That's what grace is. Well, let's explore that just a little bit. Unmerited favor is the short answer. But we need to see what it is that God has favored us with. What is it that he's given us that we don't earn, we, we don't deserve? Well, he gave us his son. Now, friend, when we talk about grace, Teaches. What teaches what? It teaches us what God has done for us. God gave His Son, John chapter 3, verse 6. I had somebody ask me one time, what did God ever do for me? And my very quick response was, He gave His Son. Now you, you just try to wrap your mind around it. He gave His Son. Well, why did He do that? Well, grace teaches us the answer to that. Why that was necessary. And as we were studying earlier from Romans chapter 3, we talked about man is guilty of sin because there's no fear of God in him, verse, verse 18. Exalted because he doesn't fear or respect or recognize the majesty of God. He has exalted himself knowing more, he thinks, than what God has revealed. And Romans 1 tells us he's become a fool for what he's done. And as you look in Romans chapter 3 now, begin at verse 23, he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified. Let's pause just there. That word justified is an important word. It is a legal term that literally means to be set free or acquitted. Now it doesn't mean you didn't commit the crime, but it means you're allowed to go free. You're allowed to go free. Now some would say, well, that's unconditional because Christ died so that we might be justified. No, justification is not that you get to go free without any conditions. No, that's not the case. Why? Because we learn in this passage it says, being justified freely by His grace. You see, you didn't do anything to be allowed to go free. God sent His Son because of sin that you've committed that the penalty had to be paid. Now, I think we miss that too sometimes. Justification came at a price. Let me illustrate. Suppose that you're living during the days of the master-slave relationship and you've got a slave and you say, I won't have anybody robbing me. I won't take, I won't take a thief. I won't have a thief working for me. And the consequence, if you steal from me, I'm going to cut off your hand. All right, you've got a fellow that stole from you. Justice, no grace, no mercy being considered. 
What must happen? Somebody's going to lose a hand. Now, that's the demands of justice. But let's suppose you say, I, I don't want to have a thief working for me at all, and I, I'm going to get rid of this fellow. I'm going to sell him. Okay? So you put him on the auction block, and before you ever start, you advise the audience that, that you're buying a one-handed man because this man is a thief. I have yet to exact the penalty, but it's going to be done before the transaction is through. And a fellow begins to binge on the slave, and he purchases the slave. And it's come time to exchange the transaction, the money and all that takes place. And the new owner lays his hand on the chopping block. Now, somebody got to lose a hand because that's the penalty, right? But the new owner says, you take my hand. Now, can you imagine that new owner taking that slave out in the field saying, I want you to dig for me a ditch right, right here. And that slave saying, you know, I don't much feel like digging a ditch for you today. He doesn't understand what justification means, does he? He doesn't understand what his new master has done for him. Now you plug that into what this passage says. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God sent forth to be a propitiation, that is a sin offering, through faith in his blood to show his righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime and the forbearance of God. For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, now look carefully, that he might himself be just. God is just. He exacts the penalty that he said that he would exact. But by his grace, he sent his son and exacted the penalty from him because God is just, that he might become the justifier of him that hath faith in Christ. You see, because he's exacted the penalty from his son, now he can justify or allow you to go free. But that's not unconditional. That's conditioned upon your faith in Christ. And we'll talk a little bit about that being an active, obedient faith. Now, when one believes that Jesus is the Christ, repents of his sin, confesses his faith, and is baptized into Christ, can he then demand, God, you owe me salvation because look at what I've done. No, sir. You couldn't do a thing if it wasn't for God's grace expressed to you in sending his son. Now, isn't that simple? Let's see what God has done for Grace came teaching. Grace came teaching us that Christ died for all men. He tasted death for every man. But not every man is saved because not every man will meet the conditions of receiving the grace that abounds toward us. And grace came teaching, teaching a man how to be saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, that's the discussion. He points out that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, but by grace have you been saved. Well, the point being is you didn't earn a thing, but it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. You see, this is the avenue by which you have access to God's grace. And Paul simply said that in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. That's why not everybody is saved by the grace of God. 
because not everybody accesses the grace of God by faith, an active, obedient faith. It is the grace of God that saves and that's revealed in the Word of God. As the Apostle Paul is speaking with those Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he said, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which will do what? Well, it will provide you the home among those that are sanctified. That's what it will do. The Word of His grace is absolutely essential. And then somebody, there's nothing I need to do. Read with me James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, the writer simply says, beginning in verse 14, he says, For or what doth it profit, my brethren, if a man say he hath faith but hath not works? Can that faith save him? I think it's interesting to note that question. Sometimes we miss the questions. The question is, can that faith save? What kind of faith? A faith that does not work. Well, look at his answer. If a brother or sister be naked in lack of daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, and yet give them not the things needful to the body, what did the prophet? Well, we got that, don't we? You go away and be warm and full. We hadn't helped him. In verse 17, Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead in itself. Yea, a man will say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith apart from thy works. Can you do that? Can you demonstrate saving faith without works? James said, Can't do that. Show me thy faith apart from thy works, and I by my works will show thee my faith. Saving faith is demonstrated in obedience. He said, Thou believest that God is one, thou doest well. The demons also believe and shudder. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith apart from works is barren? Isn't that simple? He said, Was not Abraham our father justified by works, in that he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Thou seest that... Faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see that by works a man is justified, and not only by faith. You know, I find it interesting. The only time that the combination of words, faith only, is used in the Bible is right here. Only time. And it says, not grace to only. Talking about salvation. We're not saved by faith only. So grace teaches what? It teaches us that grace saves through faith, an active, working, obedient faith. Well, what else does grace teach us? Grace teaches us that the grace of God is the means by which we might be saved, but a lawless, ungodly, immoral life is completely counter to the grace of God, contrary to the grace of God. It's contrary to the gospel of His grace. It's contrary to the word of His grace, as you see in these passages that we have on the board. So if you want to benefit from the grace of God, then you must listen to what He says about it. Now words, as we began our study, uh, this series of meetings, they're very important. We are taught in this passage that grace came teaching. Teaching is what? To deny. That's an important word. And it's a word that's used a number of times in the scriptures. And I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the Greek word, but I can use a lexicon and find what the dictionary definition is. And it simply is to affirm that no one has connection with. Let me illustrate. 
You remember in Matthew chapter 26 that when Jesus is, is talking with the apostles about how they're all going to forsake him and leave him when he is about to be crucified. And Peter said, oh, no, not me. No, I won't do that. Well, I'd die first. I won't, I won't ever deny you. And the Lord said, Peter, before the cock crows this morning, you'll deny me three times. Deny. That's the same word that's used here. Now, if you know what Peter did, you read the text of Matthew chapter 26, you'll note that the first occasion, Peter said, I know not the man. Don't know him. He denied him. Second time, no, I'm, I'm not one of the disciples. I don't know who, I don't, I don't know him. And the third time, he began to curse and swear and say, I know not the man. I'm not. Peter denied. What did he do? He disassociated himself with the Lord completely. Don't have anything to do with him. Now, that's what it means to deny. It means to abrogate, to forsake, to renounce. That's what he did. Now in our text, that's what it is. Grace came said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, if a man comes to me, he's got to deny himself. You see, self is no longer the one that's the boss, no longer the one that has to be satisfied. We're going to surrender our will to his will. We deny self. As we talked last night, he becomes first. Now that's how the word is used in this text. And I would suggest to you that by definition, it doesn't happen accidentally. It's something you do with determination. It is a deliberate act as you turn from those things that are ungodly and worldly lust. You turn away from those things. Not going to do that anymore. Not going to live that way. Well, that again recalls or calls upon us to define some words. We deny ungodliness. Well, what is that? In our first study, as we talked about the majesty of God, we turned to Romans chapter 1 and noted verse 18 beginning, where in that text the, the, it tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth in unrighteousness. What was man doing? He was practicing unrighteousness. Godliness. Do you see that? Well, what is ungodliness? Well, that's what we're to deny, you see. And if we don't know what that is, then we are ill-equipped to make the application. Ungodliness is very simply to fail to recognize the majesty of God. And if you didn't hear that lesson, go back and listen to it. We need to know who God is because ungodliness is a lack of reverence and piety and respect toward God who made us. That's what it is in general. Now, it's a progressive thing. Somebody said, well, I have some ungodly... Well, where does that go when you begin to develop ungodly attitudes? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'll note beginning in verse 16, he says, but shun profane babblings, for they will proceed further in ungodliness. Ungodliness, disrespect for God, that's a progressive thing. And we need to see that. It's not that I've achieved a benchmark and there I am. No, you won't stay there. You just drift further and further and further and further because that's the nature of ungodliness. If you don't have any regard for God, you're not going to listen to what He says. Now the reverse of that's true as well. If you're not listening to what He says, it's because you have no regard for God. Ungodliness has to be denied. Now you'll note in the text he said, deny all ungodliness. That's every bit of it. There's not any place for ungodliness in your life. 
And as the apostle is writing to those in Colossae in the third chapter in verse 5, he said, Put to death therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. And he gives us a laundry list of things that's not intended to be exhausted, uh, exhaustive, but this laundry list of things illustrates ungodliness. All of it has to be put away, every bit of it. And why must we deny all ungodliness? You remember the illustration that Jesus gave about a man who was possessed of spirits, evil spirits, and he swept out his house. But the point being established is that if you don't fill your house with something, it'll come back and be a whole lot worse. So deny all ungodliness. You can't get rid of a little bit of it and think we've got this comfort. No, got to get rid of all of it. You know why? Because if you don't get rid of all of it, Satan will come back and he'll fill it up because he is the God of this world and he'll blind your mind. And you can read that in your Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Now why is that so important? Because if I allow him to blind my mind, then he controls then the way that I think about things. And where will that lead me? In Galatians chapter 5, reading beginning in verse 19, he said, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, wrath, factions, divisions, parties, envies, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. See, there's the etc., etc. And they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven with this in your life. All ungodliness has to be denied and worldly lust. Now that, we look at that term and we say, well, that ought to be simple. Worldly, that which pertains to the world. Don't you love a good dictionary definition that uses the word you're looking up to define it? Well, that's sometimes what happens. But that which pertains to the world, lust. That word lust has been intriguing to me over the years because it simply means a strong desire. Often in our New Testament, when the word lust is the word that translates the original word, it's something that's bad. But sometimes we find that same word translated with the word desire. Sometimes that might be good or bad. But the word simply means a strong desire. Now in our context of Titus chapter 2, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Now we've got that pigeonhole. What kind of strong desire? The strong desires that are of the world. The fleshly appetites, if you please. Well, what does that include? You know, sometimes we, we associate worldly lust. Well, that, that's sexual in nature. Well, yes, that's a part of it, but it's not exclusive. It might be a strong desire for money. A love of money, Paul said, is the root of all kinds of evil. That's worldly lust. Or it might be a strong desire for pleasure. And I think that perhaps the prime illustration of that would be Moses. And as you turn to Hebrews chapter 11... And note verse 24, it tells us that by faith Moses, was he, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It's a big category. It may involve a whole lot of things, but Moses made a choice. I'm going to serve God. And that's how we see it used in our text, worldly 
lust, those things that pertain to the world. And the apostle in writing to Titus in the third chapter, he identified we've all been there. We've all done these things. So let's not pigeonhole somebody as especially evil when we've all been there. But we've got to deny any place in our lives for those things that are ungodly and worldly lust. Now let me suggest to you that as you read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24, you cannot straddle the fence. Can't do that. You've got to make a decision whether you're going to follow the things of the world or the things of the Lord. In verse 24 of Galatians chapter 5, he said, They that are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions and lust thereof. Let me illustrate. Some years ago, the story was told about the judgment scene. Those that are separated on the right hand and those that are on the left hand. You're familiar with that scene that's presented in Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25, those on the right hand were instructed to come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those on the left told to depart. And at that scene, you don't see this in your Bible, but some think that it exists. Here's a fellow that's straddling the fence. He don't know which side he's on. And so the devil says to him, you come go with me. And the fellow responds and he said, but, but I'm on the fence. I hadn't really decided which way I want to go. The devil's response was with a smirk, but you don't understand, I own the fence. So you've got to make a decision. How are you going to live your life? Deny ungodliness and worldly lust. You can't straddle the fence. You're going to make a decision. That's so critical that it's a matter of spiritual life and death. Now, the writer then says that we must live soberly, righteously, and godly. I find the order of these things rather interesting. You cannot live soberly, righteously, and godly until you have denied ungodliness and worldly lust. Got to start there. Got to make a decision. How are you going to live your life? Well, if I'm going to deny these things, then I need to implement these. Soberly, righteously, and godly. You'll notice in the text of Titus chapter 2, various groups that we read about a few moments ago are instructed to live soberly. All of them were, but these groups specifically teach the older men, the older women, the younger, teach them to live a sober life. Now we look at that word sober, and again it needs definition. That is to possess control over one's mind, desires, passions, and appetites. Do you have traffic places that are set up around here, sobriety checkpoints? Maybe you don't do that here. Sobriety checkpoints, you see. Well, we have that where we live every once in a while. And the objective of that is to find somebody that has alcohol in their car or that's opened or, or uh, find out whether or not somebody's been drinking with a breathalyzer test and things such as that. And there's a very small percentage of alcohol, very small, that's allowed by law because beyond that, you're considered to be unable to drive your car. They'll give you a ticket and they'll impound your car because your judgment is impaired. Now, there are a lot of folks, I'm sure, that think, well, I can take in a little bit of alcohol and it won't bother me at all. And often we think of a sobriety test to determine whether or not somebody's had alcohol consumption or something. But I want to suggest to you that the word itself goes further than to have something applies a lack of sound thinking. 
Well, you don't have to have something, a drug in you to impair that. You develop the ability to think right. You train yourself to do that. And that's, by the way, a commandment. As you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 5, the text tells us that we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And if you're not doing that, then you're not thinking soberly. You need to be careful about the things that you think about as Paul instructs in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 to think on these things. You train your mind to think on these things. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, brethren, that sometimes we allow things into our homes that affect the way that we think that we would not allow through the front door. And we invited in with the electronics and so forth. It's a handy tool to have, but sometimes it's a dangerous tool to have because we invite things that cause our thinking to be corrupt. When we're to think correctly, bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. Now, a fellow that wrote a commentary on this, you'll recognize his name, that's beside the point, but his point is, is valid. It says he must do his duty toward himself before he can do his duty to others. He who does not live soberly cannot live righteously. He cannot do his duty to his fellow man until he discharges those that he owes to himself. Now you think about the accuracy of that. How in the world are you going to treat God right? How are you going to treat other folks right if you haven't learned to think right? Does that make sense? So there's where you start. Deny ungodliness and worldly lust and learn to think right. Live soberly. Righteously. Righteously is simply doing what's right. Isn't that simple? You do what's right. Now in order to do that, you've got to determine a standard of what's right and what's wrong. How do you do that? Well, you use God's Word. Because this word righteousness or righteous is used to describe the character and work of God. It's used to describe the work and the death of Christ. It's used to describe the very word of God. Thy commandments are righteousness. Psalm 119 verse 172. Now individuals who understand, believe, and obey God. These are those who are living righteously. They're doing what's right. Now again, I, I know that brethren in Lancaster may get tired of me saying that, but isn't that simple? That's not hard to see. You do what's right when you live your life according to the standard. Now some attempted to not do that. And if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, we'll read of some beginning in verse 1 where he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them that they may be saved. He's talking about those that are yet in the Jews' religion. And he said, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now what were they ignorant of? They were ignorant of what God said. What were they seeking to do? They were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. But you see, the problem with that was the standard they used. 
They were not using the standard of God to do that. They were using the law of Moses to try to determine what's right and what's wrong. And the gospel is that standard. You remember again the familiar text of Romans 1 verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is revealed a righteousness of God. Now often people read this passage and say, well, you know, the gospel tells us that God is righteous. Well, that point is true, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the gospel instructs you how to be righteous. That's the standard. You want to be deemed righteous by God, you must submit to the gospel. And again, I will say, isn't that simple? There's nothing hard about that. Here's the standard. God has made it available to us so that we can read it, we can understand it, and we can obey it. And then somebody said, you know, preacher, I don't believe we can do that. I don't believe we can read it and understand it and obey it. Had a fellow tell me that one time. Claimed to be a preacher. I said, you know, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians, he said at the beginning in verse 3 that God had made some things known to him. And he said, I wrote it down whereby when you read it, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. He said, that's not what that says. I love it when I just read the text and somebody says, that's not what that says. He said, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I do. He said, I can tell you what that says. Well, what does it say? He said, that's telling you that you can read what Paul wrote and you can then understand that Paul understood the mystery. I said to him, I don't want to think on that too hard because you're telling me I can read what Paul wrote and then I can come away and know that Paul understood the mystery, but I can't understand what he said about the mystery. There's something wrong with that. No. No, you can read what he wrote and you know he understood the mystery. And he said, you read what I write, you can understand my understanding of the mystery. Okay. So we can read what he wrote and understand it, can't we? So when we read the Bible, we're learning how to be deemed by God to be righteous. That's what it says. In fact, as Peter arrived at the household of Cornelius, he said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation... He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is acceptable. In Matthew chapter 7, there were some who thought they were righteous, but they were not. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, all unrighteousness is sin. That's what John simply said. Well, if it's unrighteousness, then it's something counter to what's revealed in the gospel. So how do we know what's righteous? As one of our fellows there in Lancaster said, we've got to get our nose in the book. There's no shortcut. It's not a thing that you, you feel this is right. No. Our feelings can be misleading. The wisdom writer said in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Just because you think it will make you righteous, well, that won't do it. You've got to know it. And the only way you can do that is to get your nose in the book. And that requires something of you, just like it did the household of Cornelius, as we quoted, quoted a moment ago from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. So we deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we learn how to live soberly, righteously, and it's interesting, again, the order, godly. Piety, 
devout reverence, respect, you learn how to govern your life by that. Well, that's promoting the kind of attitude that's pleasing to God. Holy and reverend is His name. And when you live your life in accordance to that, that's recognizing God for who He is. And He rules <coughs> in your life. Now, let's illustrate. As you'll turn in your Bible to the Hebrew letter, in the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. What did Noah do? Well, he built an ark. Why did he do that? Because of his reverence for God. God said do that. Concerning things not seen as yet. Never been a flood. Never been anything like that. I want you to build the ark. Tremendous size so that folks can can be saved from the destruction. Noah moved with godly fear. Now wasn't that the problem that we saw in Romans chapter 1? There was a lack of godliness. And so having no fear of God, every man did what he wanted to and wound up worshiping idols. Thinking himself to be wise, Paul said, they became fools and changed the glory of God. For the likeness of an image of corruptible man, four-footed beast, and creeping things. What foolishness. So when we look at our text that tells us that the grace of God hath appeared, teaching, instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now that's fitting with the theme for the week because we're talking about we live in a different world. But you know, whatever world we live in, the answer is the same. It always is. Deny self. Control your thoughts. Conform to what God wants you to be. So to sum this up, what is it that grace does? Grace teaches you how to live in a wicked world. That's the world that we live in. That's the world that Paul lived in. The Corinthian. That's the world that we live in. Now you want to learn how to live? Get your head in the book. And then you'll know. Isn't that simple? I keep saying that. They, they trouble me a lot in Lancaster because I say, isn't that simple? But it is. It's just not hard. But it requires something of us. You listen patiently. Our time is up. So we'll, we'll stop with that. And if you have any questions anywhere along the way, don't hesitate.